Welcome to season one of Live the Light of Yoga, where we explore the themes of Christina Sell's newest book, A Deeper Yoga. I'm Britt Castle. And I'm Alex Lee Emmons. We are students of Christina's and teachers of yoga doing our best to understand how to respectfully practice and revere the traditions of yoga in a Western context. Listeners, we're excited to offer our first giveaway. Entry for this giveaway is simple. You just leave us a five-star review and you'll be entered to win one of Christina's online programs. This week, our winner will receive a free spot in Christina's upcoming April Asana Junkie series that she is streaming live online. To enter, simply leave this podcast a five-star review in iTunes, and this part's important, make sure you include your Instagram handle or email address so that we can contact you. We'll notify this week's winner on Wednesday morning the 8th. You can see full program details for Asana Junkies and the other online programs that we'll be gifting in the coming weeks in our show notes. And as always, thanks for tuning in and being a part of this conversation with us. Christina, you talk a fair amount about healing perfectionism in the book, which I cannot relate to at all. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Um... And there's this word that I've heard you teach about from the Sanskrit um, yogic traditions of porna. And so I'm wondering if you could discuss a bit the distinction between this Western idea of perfectionism as compared to the Eastern understanding of porna. Yeah, I think for me, this was an early teaching that I got from Douglas Brooks, who talked about this a lot, that... For our cultural context, a lot of times perfect means there's no flaws. So we'd say perfect 10, no mistakes, no deductions. Um, There's nothing wrong happening. And there's nothing marring it. It's perfect without a flaw. And when we look at porna, it translates as perfect, but also translates as full. Like the full moon is um, is the pornama moon. So when the moon is at half, and it's a half moon in the sky, we don't say, oh, it's a flawed moon. (laughs) It's just half full. But when it's full, then it's perfect because it's completed itself, because it is full of its potential. And so perfect in that context is a recognition of a wholeness or a completeness or a coming to fruition as opposed to... um, without a flaw. And I think that um, many, many, many people, you know, people who relate to the idea of perfectionism, unlike you. (laughs) I'm teasing. Um, Most of us have some internalized perfectionism or belief that we are worthy of love only when we're without flaw. And many of us can do the work with a good psychotherapist or a good pen and paper, you know, journal writing to start to see that if you believe that in any way, even though most of us are really smart and intellectually, I would say to you, Alex, Britt, do you think that I'm worthy of love even though I have some flaws? And you're like, yeah, I totally know what your flaws are too. And I love you. You know, <laughs> you, you, none of us believe it intellectually. We all know better. Yet these kinds of beliefs about what makes us worthy or unworthy of love are generally, let's see, programmed into our 
brain at a level that's pre-verbal. So the times, for instance, when our loving mother, if you're, many people have very loving mothers and even the best mothers out there, you all know, you get tired. <laughs> and even though you want to nourish your child, for instance, you just woke up and you're tired or sleepy or busy or something. So let's say I'm a baby and I have you know, new into the world. My brain is still very new, very impressionable. I don't even have a fully developed frontal lobe that can analyze a situation intelligently. I'm instinct purely and I cry because I'm hungry. And in comes my loving mother who um, on her face is sleepy or frustrated or dealing with her own needs and mine seem just one thing too much that moment. And it's not because she doesn't love me, not because she isn't caring. Um, so I'm painting this picture that even in the best of circumstances with the most loving caregivers, uh, they're human and they have limits and, and that those limits register on their facial features, frustration, resentment, fatigue, and they enter the baby's brain through, you know, the mirror neurons and through a sense of empathy that's not rational and they start to encode in the small child, oh, I'm a problem, or oh, there's something wrong with me, or that there's some disruption to my to to my deservedness, and not any of that's a verbal. I mean, and none of that's conscious. So a lot of the feelings that we've internalized around perfectionism got laid down before we had any choice about it. So and that's even in good situations. And, you know, many people listening, you didn't have great situations. There is problems in, in the family system or in, in the way that you're cared for or, and even in cases of neglect, that can be really hard to track down because it's hard to identify what you didn't have. So all of that little da uh, foray into psychology for a moment is just to say that um, with the help of a good psychotherapist and some honest self-reflection, most of us can hopefully understand that even though we know better that we don't have to be perfect to be lovable, we have places in our psyche that believe that and operate from that belief and that if you dig a little bit deeper, you came by that honestly. So why I went through all of that is that last piece is that whatever it is that we believe as, as irrational as it may seem to our waking logical thinking selves, my premise is that we got, we came by it honestly, meaning something happened or something didn't happen or a series of some things did or didn't happen that constellated in us so that we have that belief operating consciously or not. And that um, is a probably, you know, a topic of a whole other series of podcasts for <laughs> the psychotherapists out there to, and the brain development specialists to really go deeper into. But I, I say it because uh, the more we can see how some of these patterns got laid down and see them that we really didn't make them up, that we interpreted situations with the best of our ability at the time with the information we had, which when we're in the crib is not a lot of information and not a lot of brain capacity. But the recognition that I keep saying we came by it honestly goes a long way to building some compassion. It's not like a fault. I'm not describing something that is a result of being morally flawed. So um, that's just even in the caregiving situation, pre-verbal infancy. But 
but look all the way to our common marketing streams of never enough, we're never thin enough, your skin's never smooth enough, <laughs> you're never the quite nice enough car. All of these things are aimed at reinforcing this belief that on the other side of something that we don't have now mm. will be some state of love or some state of, uh, of grace, if you will. Um, and some of that's developmentally appropriate. You know, there's a, there's a part of the developmental path that's important that we achieve, that we also improve ourselves in some way. Many times we have personality quirks and foibles that it was going to really make our life a lot better if we sort out, (laughs) you know, you have a problem with stealing, you know, you probably should work on that a little bit. If you can't tell the truth well, consistently, Mm. Um, and there's many really wonderful people I know who have a problem with honesty. You know, they like tell little lies that aren't even necessary. So there's things to improve upon and to work on and to help ourselves with, and that would help our lives. So my point in all of this is just to say that most of us have internalized, whether it's from our family system, our social network, or the culture at large, some message that says love is... Um, attainable, uh, there for us when we're perfect and only then. This is a horrifying dis- um, discussion for a lot of parents because most parents I know really would pass a lie detector test for their unconditional love of their child. And yet most people I know have this pattern of I have to be perfect in order to be loved. Mm. And how we got to there should give us a sense of compassion for ourselves and for one another because both things are true. No parent wants their child to feel like they're not unconditionally loved because almost, you know, most good parents love their kids unconditionally and yet it's not the child's experience. So there's something broken there. There's something broken in the way our brains develop right alongside one another and the communication that happens due to a whole bunch of these patterns interplaying with one another. And so that's to me a little tender um, reality of relational life and particularly the parent-child relationship, I think. So um, whether we look at it in our family system, like I said, or in our culture at large, Um, let's say we got that message from the outside, but most by now when we're adults practicing asana or practicing our yogic um, life, we've internalized it. And so not only do we feel that someone else can't love us until we're perfect, many times, many of us withhold love from ourselves until that day where we perceive ourselves as perfect. And so these two things are interacting, not just from the outside in, but the way that we also withhold from ourselves our own love and our own compassion. And this can even be set up in the way we talk about yoga. And one of the things that Lee, my spiritual teacher, talked about a lot was that enlightenment, if you will, which he didn't use that word a lot, but he said it doesn't come at the end of psychological perfection. It's not that you do a bunch of psychotherapy, you root out all your bad habits, you become this like super polite, better, you know, dressed and more hygienic version of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And then enlightenment. It's a shift of context such that you see the wholeness of reality. and, And it is a completely different thing 
than, um, not completely different, but it is a different thing than the maturation process of growing up and developing ourselves and, and in a sense, improving ourselves. There's improvement work to do. So, um, and I think that sometimes even the way we talk about in yoga, it can give the message that, oh, when I really finally get my legs straight in Trikonasana and I really balance the spirals of my legs and all of these things are got my bandhas and my drishti's happening and all of that, I'm gonna have it all perfect. And then boom, the thing will happen. And, um, and I just don't think that that's the case. So we are really starting to pull back from, in this model, this idea that what we're up to is self-improvement, perf- perfecting ourselves so that we get, in a sense, a kind of reward called love from others and f- become worthy of our own love. And we're talking about the idea that at the deepest level of who we are, the nature of who we are is love. And it's not dependent on those um, things like how well we're doing in the pose or how much money we make or, or that we are never rude or that we never lose our temper or, and these are moving targets and they're culturally determined. And that's an important piece to understand too, because in the Western context of yoga, we tend to have a lot of expectations on political correctness in the world of yoga and never being offensive, never arguing, never losing our temper. It's like a very, like I said, very hygienic, sanitized, polite, high-functioning version of what we think it is to be a yogi. And um, and I remember the first time I went to India, and I realized that their cultural context was nothing like a yoga studio in America. <laughs> I mean, they have a completely different relationship to lines, you know like which to me in my culture was rude and therefore not yogic but in their culture they have a different way of conducting business and the way lines work and it's very complicated from my viewing but my view as a western white woman raised with certain expectations that things function a certain way reinforced by this high political correctness of the yoga studio where everybody is somehow liberal and accepting and polite and anyway that's not part of that cultural paradigm in the same way that we're doing yoga out of so why so what's even polite acceptable perfect is um, from these standards when we start to look at culture that's why it's a bit of a moving target because it depends on the circumstance you're in what is the what meets the requirement for said perfection so um, when we start to see yoga as a practice of connecting with wholeness, where then we're looking beneath the surface of behavior. So it's a different thing than I will somehow earn this state of love. It's a starting point, And then practice becomes a mechanism by which we remove obstacles to love and to feeling our own for ourselves, to feeling love for others and for uh, be feeling loved by others. And it's a very com- complicated process sometimes to remove those obstacles. And many people are very loved by people in their lives and we don't feel it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because we're already, we just can't get in. Mm-hmm. 
it can't get in through the through the barriers that we have and the ways we withhold it from ourselves and that we were taught to do that so um i think that this to me was a radical kind of notion even that when i first heard it because i really had placed my own love at arm's distance from myself until i was going to be a certain size a certain weight a certain shape none of which was really likely to happen or for it to happen would create a very dysfunctional, unhealthy Christina. <laughs> so to start to understand that, the, um, that there is a level of change, there is a level of self-development, there is a level where we can improve and love lives outside those things, ultimately. Now, if I was living with someone who was lying all the time, it would interfere with my capacity to be in a loving relationship with them because trust would be problematic. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be that their nature, it wouldn't interfere with the nature of who they are, or it might, I might through work be able to still feel love for that person, but that doesn't mean I could be in a viable, working, loving, active relationship. So there's a lot of nuances here. At least don't, I don't think of love as a, as a one size fits all thing. Just because we can find love for someone's being doesn't mean we can live with them. Mm -hmm. or that it's healthy for us so um to be in relationship with them so at any rate i um i think that that to me is a really interesting concept and i think there's a lot in yoga that reinforces this perfectionistic ideal that does not set us free of it and that i think that's part of what we're unraveling as we start to go well if we make it so much about um all of those surface protocols and prescriptions of how to be a good yogi and then you'll be worthy. I think that we're reinforcing that negative love script mm -hmm. as opposed to seeing those things as helpful. You know, for instance, I, um, if I'm binging and purging daily, I'm really not in a loving relationship with myself. It's a self-destructive behavior. It's a violent behavior. So, at the same time, I'm still no less worthy of love. And I'm less likely, however, to feel it. <laughs> so there's a lot to come into relationship with. But I learned about this in terms of an eating disorder the very hard way because I did a very good early stage recovery. I sort of like got got abstinent from bulimia, sort of did all these things right. And when I had a first relapse about two years into my recovery, I was so hating all of this work I, I just took away. I was so mean to myself about it. And I would say it's really been a long process of, of growing on the path to, to start to tease out this capacity to be loving and to let change be motivated by as an act of love, as opposed to, like you were saying earlier, just shaming yourself into better behavior. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't outlast. It does work initially. It will work for, it's a really good strategy, shame. <laughs> yeah, it's just not a last. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those up to a point, very helpful. Yeah. After a point, not helpful. And I would make a distinction. Anyone who's recovered from um, a, an addiction of any kind knows that there's value in remorse. Mm. That feeling inside ourselves, like I don't want to do this to myself or to another person or true remorse about our behavior and its outcomes is so essential for growth 
but shame is like a cheap cousin of that. Shame is like, I'm bad, I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And it, it rarely results in, cha- in change. True remorse is, is an incredible tool for change, but it takes so much courage because it's so much more vulnerable than just hating ourselves with shame. It's like, I really, really betrayed myself or betrayed that other person and it and to let ourselves feel that usually shame is sitting on top keeping us from feeling that and that's why I say it doesn't last there's something loving in the acknowledgement of our true wrongdoing Mm -hmm. so this isn't love saying oh it's all good we will behave poorly and we should be loving enough to ourselves to tell the truth it has a lot of flavors like that is that helpful Definitely. And I'm, um, I'm curious, you said that it is helpful to, to improve. Like there are some things like compulsive lying that could clearly, um, be improved upon and that would create a better life if that were shifted. And so, um, in this chapter that we're talking about, you mention the trap of self-improvement. And so, it feels like such a fine line. Like at what point do we know that we're in the trap of self-improvement and that this is just another layer on top of sort of the, the perfection um, that we're told that we need to achieve? Um, mm. Or when is it time to sort of surrender or orient towards the bigger love that's underneath it all? Does that make sense? It sure does. I feel like um, that perfectionistic tendency is... Um, it's kind of wily. It dresses up and changes its its um, clothes a lot. Um, so I don't know that there, my point in saying that is I don't know that there is a time at which point we know. <laughs> I do know um, that this is, this trap of self-improvement is not a new yoga practitioner's problem. Because in, in the first five years, probably, at least the first year for a lot of people, the yoga is giving a lot of boons usually, and the progress is rapid. So it is incredibly empowering for people to start a practice where they show up to the studio regularly, and they have some friends that they are sharing practice with, and they're making some healthier choices, and they're getting an arm balance, and they're straightening their legs, and their arm and their poses are coming along, and, and it's empowering, I mean, because achievement and accomplishment um, is is part of life. It's, it's really great. It's a wonderful thing. So I, I want people to have that. I like it. Um, so this is a more of an intermediate stage person's problem when they're pissed off at practice, when it's not giving them that thing anymore that it used to give. That's one of the signs that we're in that trap when the practices that used to bring relief don't. Like I always felt better when I got done with asana. Now I don't either. I don't want to do it or I don't feel better Mm. or I'm mad at my teacher, my studio, Mm. myself. For me, some of those things where um, I think that's one clue. I don't know that we always know I'm in perfectionism. I think we sometimes know it's symptoms and it's symptoms can be burnout. It can be a feeling of disinterest or upset. Is that helpful? That, that is helpful. Lock it. I think yeah, so too. Yeah, this little you whimper of you guys say... here is the dog in the room. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And if you have a perfectionistic tendency, as many of us do, like we've outlined, 
you should just know it. Chances are at some point you'll realize it's dressed up and come to yoga with you and is robbing your joy. Mm. That's one of the things that is the symptomatic of perfectionism playing um, a, a more leading role. To be really clear, before we let Lockett out of the room and close for the day, there's a lot of good uses for that drive. I mean, a lot of the drive to improve, to get it right, it creates zeal and hard work and it gets people committed and nothing can really happen until we're in place and working. It's just the same way that a relationship usually starts in, in a sort of flush of love and then you start to hate the person for the thing you fell in love with them for <laughs> on the other <laughs> side. <laughs> it's like perfectionism will get you in the game. It'll get you working hard. Yeah. And then at some point, it'll it'll turn on you and, and you'll find yourself depleted and, and upset or looking for another exercise discipline or some other new fancy thing to try. And it's not that anything is going wrong, in my opinion. It's just time to um maybe purify that if you will or just come into a more conscious relationship with it if you're wired that way and you think about even just my very pop psychology explanation today <laughs> and then we'll close but if you think it's that deep wired then maybe it's just something, the tendency towards perfectionism is something that we live with rather than eradicate, but we learn to put it in its proper perspective. Like, oh, that's perfectionism. Oh, I can offer myself love and, and acceptance and compassion rather than being perfectionistic about eradicating perfectionism. Like, I now know that I'm perfectionistic, so I'm going to kick perfectionism's ass and get rid of it completely and perfectly so I'm like a super good, not perfectionistic person and perfectly non-perfectionistic. Yeah, totally. There's more good good in this um in this chapter of your book, like so much about combating perfectionism and um, even just how to be with it, like to not even combat it, but to just name it and see it yeah. and uh, show tenderness towards it. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Lockett. Thank you, Lockett. Um, that is our time for the day. And she's chiming in because she is a perfect being. Yeah, she is. <laughs> so whole. <laughs> so full. Christina leads workshops, online courses, and intensives around the world. To learn more, visit livethelightofyoga.com or follow Christina on Instagram at christinacell108. If you want to read about these ideas in more depth, you can purchase Christina's book, A Deeper Yoga, on her website or anywhere else that books are sold. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a five-star review on iTunes is one of the sweetest and most impactful gifts you can give. Please consider rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends so we can widen the conversation. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Britt Castle, and Alex Lee Ammons. Special thanks to Kelly Sell, Lockett, Sassy, and Izzy. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time on Live the Light of Yoga.